Good morning. It's Wednesday, September 15th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. California Governor Gavin Newsom is here to stay. Last night, he survived a historic attempt to oust him from office, and he won this recall election by a huge margin. The LA Times reports this recall was the best chance in more than a decade for California Republicans to take over the highest state office. But it ultimately failed after Newsom and national Democrats cast this election as a matter of life and death when it comes to handling the pandemic. Conservative talk show host Larry Elder led more than 40 candidates who were challenging Newsom. Elder conceded last night, though he also hinted at a potential future run when Governor Newsom comes up for re-election next year. Ten years ago this week, waves of protesters flocked to Wall Street. They camped out in Zuccotti Park by the thousands, demanding an end to the growing gap between the haves and the have-nots. They pointed the finger at corporate greed, political gridlock, and wasteful spending on the democratic process. I remember being in Lower Manhattan covering those protests, and you could feel the energy in the air. It was contagious. Similar protests popped up across the country and really around the world. And then, just like that, the movement seemed to vanish. Even though it came and went, Occupy Wall Street would go on to have a lasting impact on U.S. politics and society. I think it's largely recognized as accomplishing a change of language in the American lexicon by introducing the language of the 99% and the 1%. That's Michael Levitin. He's a journalist and the author of the book Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. He writes in The Atlantic that this language, 99% versus the 1%, It stuck because it spoke to so many people. The protests started in New York City, but the problems they were talking about were felt everywhere. The unequal recovery from the Great Recession, ballooning student debt, the climbing cost of housing and health care. That was the point when suddenly economic inequality became a front and center issue. And it has been ever since. It changed our politics fundamentally by giving the message and the populist economic momentum that drove Elizabeth Warren into her Senate seat in her first election in 2012, and then more significantly gave the, you know, who became known as something of the Occupy candidate, who was Bernie Sanders, gave him this momentum that the country was ready to hear his message about the billionaire class, about raging inequality and injustice coming from Wall Street and Washington. Maybe the biggest change to come from the Occupy movement is how we talk about a livable wage. The federal minimum wage hasn't changed in more than a decade, but occupiers helped put pressure on corporations along with state and local governments to raise wages across the country. It was Occupy people who helped in the early stages, along with unions and community groups, to organize the very first Fight for $15 minimum wage protests among fast food workers in New York City in 2012. 
That message caught fire, not just in New York, not just across America, but across the world as fast food workers struck and for years went on marches and strikes. And that movement spread not only the fight for 15, but it spread to janitors and domestic workers and hotel workers and airport workers and eventually to the teacher strikes even in the United States where teachers at public schools in red conservative states like Oklahoma and West Virginia and the Carolinas struck and won higher wages. Levitin says now that we're entering a new charged era of worker demands, largely because of the pandemic, we can see how Occupy was an early wake-up call for the 99%. We're nearly a year and a half into the pandemic, And rapid at-home COVID tests, they still aren't the golden ticket some public health experts hope they would be. It's not because they don't work or that the technology isn't there. It's because in the U.S., they're too expensive and there aren't enough of these tests. NBC News has this story. Maybe you've gone to your local grocery store and looked at the shelves and thought, where are the tests? Or if you're lucky enough to find them, maybe you're thinking, why are they so expensive? Rapid at-home tests cost around $10 or $15 each, which adds up. I mean, think about a family of four who might want to do weekly testing. And it doesn't have to be this way. In Germany, grocery stores are selling them for less than the equivalent of a dollar. Canada is giving them to businesses for free. Making these tests readily available can have huge payoffs. In Israel, 8,000 students tested positive using these home tests, and that meant they stayed home from school And the other 180,000 kids in the system were able to keep learning without interruption. Just last week, President Biden announced he's invoking the Defense Production Act to try to solve this problem. He promised to make 280 million rapid COVID tests available. And he struck a deal with Walmart, Amazon and Kroger to sell tests for up to 35 percent less than the current price. For people on Medicaid, at-home tests will be fully covered. It sounds like a lot of tests, a huge number, but one epidemiologist at Harvard did the math. He commented on Twitter that in the U.S., 280 million works out to less than one test per person over the course of a year. The global shortage of microchips. It's affecting all kinds of things, including the production line for brand new cars. And one trickle-down effect, we're seeing more demand for used and rental cars. And just when you thought things couldn't get any worse, it looks like we haven't reached peak car shortage yet. Now, we're going to highlight two stories here. The first comes from CNBC. They're reporting buyers now have to be on the lookout for cars that were damaged by this year's overactive hurricane season. Owners are supposed to report when their car gets damaged from too much water. That information is to protect the next buyer from wasting money on a lemon. But according to CNBC, there are lots of people who simply aren't playing by the rules. The National Insurance Crime Bureau, which is a thing, says given the number of bad storms we've had this year, everyone needs to be on the lookout for scammers. And there are things you can do to check a car for flooding. You can see if the upholstery is loose or if it doesn't match the rest of the car. If there's rust on the doors or pedals, the trunk latches, or under the hood, that could be another sign that there's been water damage. In the meantime, if you need a car but can't buy one, you might be stuck looking for a rental. The LA Times spoke to car rental experts who predict 
renting a car is going to be increasingly difficult and expensive until at least 2022. Because of the car shortage, car rental agencies are keeping older cars for way longer. So the car you end up renting, it may not be that nice. A couple years ago, it was pretty common to rent a car with just 10,000 miles on it. Now, cars with up to 90,000 miles are being rented out. And it's gotten so bad that car rental companies are trying to buy back the cars they once sold to used car dealerships. Our relationship with space travel is about to change. For the first time in history, an all-civilian crew is going to orbit the Earth. This three-day SpaceX mission is being dubbed Inspiration4. It's scheduled to launch tonight, and one of the passengers on the space flight is Haley Arsenault. She's a childhood cancer survivor. Arsenault was chosen by the mission's billionaire funder to represent St. Jude's. She'll be the youngest American to go to space. She's 29. And she'll be the first person with a prosthetic body part. She shared her story with The Cut for this recurring series they do called How I Get It Done. It's where they talk to women about how they manage their lives and their careers. Decades after her own treatment, Arsenault now works at St. Jude's as a physician's assistant. And she says she sees her upcoming flight as a chance to inspire kids with cancer. Arsenault tells The Cut, Training has been intense. Last week, she and the crew went through a 30-hour simulation. They practice everything they'll be doing up in space, sleeping, eating, all of it. Arsenal said they were told, get comfortable being uncomfortable. The crew is expected to orbit the Earth, then splash down off the coast of Florida about three days later. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're in the app, keep listening to hear narrated articles from our News Plus partners. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.